from that that comes upon those to reject his son to live for themselves chapter 16, verse 17. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. 
All right, we're going to um, <coughs> study. We're coming, to approaching. We have three more classes to do in the Book of Romans. We're going to do uh, Romans sixteen twenty this evening, and uh, this is this in this passage. We're going to find that Paul promises the Romans that God, the Holy Spirit, will quickly crush Satan uh, uh, under their feet, and he desires also that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be manifested among them. So this is what we're going to see here this evening. Tomorrow evening, Thursday, we're going to do verses twenty one through twenty three. And then Sunday we're going to finish off the epistle uh, noting the doxology that is in the very last three verses of Romans 16. So uh, this evening we're going to do Romans 16, 20 as we normally do. We take that moment of silent prayer. So you guys know what to do in front of me. Uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for gracing us out and giving us the forgiveness of our sins and a relationship, an eternal relationship and fellowship with you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for your word and the gift of the Spirit who makes your word real and understandable to us. And thank you, Father, for revealing your character and nature to us. Thank you, Father, for revealing who your Son is in the Spirit and also what you've done for us through them in the past, are doing for us now, will do for us in the future. We also thank you, Father, for loving us back in eternity past before we were even created, but we know that we, we were in your mind and thinking. And thank you, Father, for giving us insight, not only to your, into your character and nature, and what you've done for us through your Son and the Spirit, are doing for us and will do for us in the future, but also, Father, for teaching us your ways, to teach us to love each other as you loved us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And we just pray, Father, that you would continue to reveal to us in your word through the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit all the things that you've done for us and the great implications of our union, our marriage with your son, Jesus Christ. And we just thank you, Father, uh, also for the Thompsons opening up their home for us so that we could uh, have fellowship in the word here. And we just uh, pray, Father, for not only those here in the Thompson household, but those who might be listening to this class right now on Pal Talk or viewing it or viewing it and listening to it at a later date on the website. We just pray, Father, that they would be spoken to by the Holy Spirit, that the Word would be firmly implanted in their souls, and that you would continue to water it with the Word and the Spirit. And we just pray, Father, that you would help us all to uh, find the proper application. We pray that we would be encouraged by the message, instructed in righteousness, rebuked if necessary, but uh, that we would receive the, that information that we need to go further in your plan to become more like your son, Jesus Christ, and grow to spiritual maturity. We pray that you would help the communicator to deliver to your people this information in a fashion that would be ministering to your people and bring glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. We know that he cannot impart the word uh, accurately and with power without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we pray that he would do a mighty work through the communicator as well, not, and not just the, the audience. And we just pray that as a result of this Bible study, that we would continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, it is in His name we pray for all these things. Amen. 
Alright, should be at Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Well, as I noted earlier, we're going to study Romans 16, 20. And Paul promises uh, the, uh, the Roman believers that God the Holy Spirit, who produces peace in and among the Roman believers, will soon crush Satan under their feet. And then he follows this up by expressing his desire that the grace of the Lord Jesus be manifested among them. So he makes two statements here in Romans 16, 20, which we're going to note here this evening. Excuse me. Oh, and I opened up my windows today in my uh, in my apartment, shut the air conditioner off, and uh, of course now I'm sneezing like crazy. I'll probably have to live in air conditioning the rest of my life because I can't breathe anymore. But anyways, uh, this is why Titus is laughing and Jody, maybe you guys know what I'm talking about. But uh, this is a cool passage. I think you're going to really enjoy it. And... Uh, uh, we're going to find out how important the Holy Spirit is in our walk with God and our victory over Satan. Now remember, it's all uh, the Holy Spirit has inspired the Scriptures as we've seen many times in the past, but He also gives us understanding of the Scriptures. And when we apply the Scriptures, He produces the fruit of the. He has that production of the fruit of the Spirit. That basically He produces love in us and joy and peace and, and patience and, and self control and all the and kindness. All these things the Holy Spirit will produce in our lives if we obey what he says to us in the word of God. And also, if we also obey him, uh, what the Spirit says to us in the word of God, and in particular, as Paul's gonna, we're going to point out with Paul, if we obey his warning in verses 17 through 19 to watch out for the, the false teachers, what's going to happen is that Satan will be crushed under our feet. And it's not under Christ's feet, as we're going to see, it's under our feet. And we can experience that victory over Satan through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and when we do that, we're, of course, uh, because the Spirit inspired the Scriptures, we're doing that through our application of the Word of God. So this is something that's really uh, uh, going to be uh, exciting. And what's going to be interesting also is we see that uh, this particular statement, first statement in Romans 16, 20, is actually implying, as we'll see, that the false teachers are actually from the kingdom of darkness. Satan is the one who is behind false teaching. And, of course, false teaching comes in many forms in Paul's day, and what Paul was talking about in Romans 16, verses 17 through 20, had to do with those Judaizers who were Jewish believers and Jewish unbelievers who tried to put Christians under the law. They thought they said that you had to get circumcised or you had to keep the law. And that was a contradiction to what the Lord and the apostles taught, including what the, the, what the prophets said in the Old Testament, what is said in the law, for that matter. So it's interesting uh, that we're going to see that here this evening. That's an exciting passage that I think you'll really enjoy. And we're also going to see in this verse, as I said before, that uh, Paul expresses a desire that the grace of the Lord Jesus would be manifested among them. And as we're going to find out, that grace has to do with our applying the Word of God. The Word of God is actually, when we hear the teaching of the Word of God, that is grace. God is revealing His plan, His grace policy to us through the communication of the Word of God. So this is something that I think you're going to find real interesting. And as we uh, wind our way down to the study of, uh, in the book of Romans. But look at Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause divisions or dissensions and hindrances. The word hindrances talks about temptations to sin and enter into apostasy. Contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Disassociate yourself with false teaching and those who follow 
false teaching. Uh, what we need to do is that we need to use church discipline, and that means that the church is to turn away from those who are te teaching false doctrine. We're not to be tolerant of that, because as Paul said to the Galatian believers, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And leaven, many times in the Bible, talks about evil. So we want to have no evil around, and evil comes in the form of false doctrine. So for instance, in our day and age, people teach that you could lose your salvation. False doctrine. That contradicts what the scriptures teach. And there are people that say you have to keep the law for the, for the to live the spiritual life. And that you need to keep the Ten Commandments to please God. Yes, you, we should be keeping the Ten Commandments, but our life is based upon what the, 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 the teaching of the New Testament and positional truth with the Apostle Paul and being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ richly dwell in our soul and living the spiritual life according to the teaching of the Apostles and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is now in the New Testament. And many things that were taken like uh, from the, uh, uh, in the in that are in the New Testament, like love your neighbor as yourself, were in the law, were in the Old Testament, and they of course are applicable applicable for hear us for here uh, for those of us here in the church age. But you, we need to remember there's an aspect of the law, the ceremonial aspect of the law, which is not for us. Keeping the Sabbath was for Israel. Uh, sacrificing a lamb was for Israel. That's the ceremonial aspect of the law. The dietary regulations that we talked so much about in Romans 14, that was of the law. See, the Judaizers were taking the ceremonial aspect of the law, which was not for the church age, was for Israel, Old Testament Israel, another dispensation, and they were trying to force that on Christians. And of course, Gentile Christians, they were not, uh, they, 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 God did not want to put them under the dietary regulations of Old Testament uh, Israel. So we see that the Judaizers would force that down Gentile Christians' uh, mouths. And uh, that is what Paul was seeking to avoid. He didn't want them to be uh, browbeaten or pressured into keeping the law that they had to get circumcision. And the Galatian church, which was Gentile Christians, they, were, they actually fell victim to the Judaizers' teaching. And even the Corinthians, as if you read Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, these individuals were, uh, with their smooth and flattering speech, were actually deceiving the Corinthian church. These Judaizers, these Judea the, the legalistic teaching. And the Judaizers came from the Pharisees, we've seen. And they were legalistic. They manifested, they were hip hypocrites. They were more concerned about the outward appearance rather than what was going on in the heart. And they rejected the Word of God. They would have their own traditions like many denominations today have. And they reject the Word of God. And Jesus rebuked them in Mark 7 for their invalidating the Word of God to keep their own man-made traditions. That's the sign of a false teaching. When they are using, they're teaching things that are not found in the Bible. Or they're misapplying things from Israel and putting them into the church age when they have no business being there in the church age, such as the dietary regulations and Sabbath keeping. All that stuff is of, of another dispensation and if they're going to do the Sabbath they might as well get in to do the sacrifice the lamb and have a tabernacle and have a temple and ask people like that who are involved in that sort of thing. That is for a different dispensation. The church as we've seen many times is not the new Israel. That's called replacement theology, those who teach that. That's a dangerous doctrine. We're dispensationalists. We believe there's a distinction between Israel and the church because that's what the Bible teaches. We've seen that many, many times. The church and Israel are two different 
entities. And right now God is dealing with the world through the church, the agency of the church, which is indwelt by the Spirit. And we see that Israel has been temporarily set aside, but once the church has been raptured, then God will deal with the nation of Israel and give them Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation period, and then comes their millennial reign, uh, which is subsequent to the second advent of Christ. So Paul says in Romans 16, 17, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them, he says. Why? For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. It's sarcasm there. Appetites is referring to their strict adherence, their fanatical observance to the dietary regulations of the law. And then he says, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting, the uh, spiritually naive, people who don't have discernments. A discernment, Christians that don't have discernment, keen understanding. How do you get discernment as a Christian? How do you have love that is discerning? The Word of God. Listen to what the Spirit says in the Word of God. You will never acquire discernment and you'll be spiritually naive if you reject the teaching of the Word of God. If you're not a serious student of the Word of God. Immature believers, uh, they are, they do not have, they're, they're naive. Uh, if I could equate it, it'd be like uh, a little kid who will accept candy from any old stranger because it's candy. It doesn't have any discernment. Well, God, you, your parents, you teach your kids, you don't take candy from any old stranger. Only you take candy from me and people I say you can. And that gives the child, teaches the child discernment. It's the same thing here in, in, in a spiritual sense where Christians need to be taught by their pastors discernment and you don't accept or hear uh, accept any old teaching out there it has to be in accordance to the word of God and that means the pastor has to be dedicated and faithful and instructing his congregation just like a parent should be faithful and dedicated to teaching their children the right way to act in the family and I'm to teach you the right way to act in God's family. And this is what we see, that the Paul didn't want the Roman believers to fall for the deception of the Judaizers who came on like they were their best their best friend, when in reality, they were wolves in sheep's clothing. Then he says in verse 19, for the, and he advances upon what he, his warning in verses 17 and 18. In verse 19 he says, for the report of your obedience has reached to all the majority of believers in the Roman Empire. They were renowned for their obedience to the gospel. Not just to get saved, but the gospel, the, the, that which is in the gospel that is related to after your conversion to Christianity, that's related to your advance to spiritual maturity and growing up to become like Jesus Christ. Then he makes an inference from that statement in verse 19. Therefore I'm rejoicing over you. It caused them great joy. However, he has an adversative clause that follows that says, I, I want to, that's great that you're, um, I love the fact that you're obedient. However, I, there's something I want you to know. I gave you that warning for a reason. He says, but I want you to be wise in what is good, that which is according to the will of the Father, which is found in the Word of God. And innocent, that means uncontaminated with respect to what is evil. Evil is independence from God. Evil manifests itself in rejection of the Word of God. And the devil is the author of evil. And many Christians are so gullible because they haven't either been taught or they've been taught and rejected that they think evil is the exorcist only. That they think the occult 
and things like uh, the exorcist where you have demon possession and you know things head spinning around and, and uh, throwing up all over the place and things flying across the room and, and poltergeists and all that stuff they think that's the the extent of Satan's activity Satan is all his activity is all around us the society that we live in and the attitudes in society are the the product of the devil and you look around yourself you look around it's infected the Christian church it infects our whole lives that we, we, we the, the early church used to meet every day now you get Christians it, to get to Sunday for one hour is a big production I mean, what happened? The world has dis- has has got us distracted and taken us away from that which is important in life. What? The Word of God. Fellowship with each other. Corporate prayer. And we've seen that even the church has been deceived because they rejected the Word of God. And they've been deceived and they don't realize that Satan is in the world system. Satan is in the attitude that my father and my mother are more important than my doing God's will. That's evil. Nothing comes before Jesus Christ. Anything you put, any God that you put, including your father or mother, or your wife or husband, or your child, or your dog or your cat, or your music, or your baseball, or your Red Sox, or your Yankees, or your Patriots, any, or your sewing, any, or your computer, anything that's above your relationship with Jesus Christ is evil. Evil is independence from God. So you can be a moral, sweet, nice person and be involved in evil. Because evil is anything that gives you independence from God. And you don't think you need God. And there are a lot of people that are beautiful human beings by the world standards. But God says they're wicked. Because they live independently of me. They think their homes are more important. They think their possessions are more important. They think their relationship, human relationships are more important than Jesus Christ. That's called spiritual adultery in James. It's called spiritual adultery. James in James 4 says you adulteresses. You have basically been unfaithful to Jesus Christ who you were married to, he's saying. And that's evil. So he does, Paul in Romans 16, 19, he says he, he wants them to be wise, wise ones as we saw, with respect to what is good, what's in the word of God, and innocent or uncontaminated with respect to what is evil. How do you stay uncontaminated? Reject false teaching. How do you get that? Be able to discern false teaching? Know your Bible. How do you how do you protect your soul? How do you keep it uncontaminated? Confess your sins. Confess your sins. First John, First John one nine. After you've done that, obey what the Spirit says to you in the Word of God. The filling of the Spirit. The two power options: the Word of God and the Spirit of God, which work in conjunction with one another. That that is what we need to do to keep ourselves uncontaminated from Satan's cosmic system, which is evil. And they, and they, they, they and, and and so always remember that you could be moral, but yet you could be involved in evil, because evil, all sin, all sin is evil, but not all evil is sin. All sin is evil, but not all evil is not all evil is sin. Now look, he says in verse twenty. Then he says a transition to something else. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now the promise there, the first statement in verse 20 is a promise to the, the Roman believers. And that's a promise to us too, people, in the 21st century. If we reject false teaching, 
It says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under Christ's feet? No, under your feet. Now that promise marks a transition from Paul's warning concerning false teachers and verses 17 through 19 to a promise of deliverance from Satan who is behind these false teachers here and verse 20. So that statement, the God of peace will soon crush Satan at your feet, is a promise of deliverance that if we obey what the Spirit says in the in those warnings in verses 17 through 19, if we obey what the Spirit's saying there, because He's the God of peace, as we'll say, if we obey that, that warning, Satan will be crushed under our feet. Why? Because Satan cannot stand against the Word of God, people. He cannot stand against the Word of God. And that is the sword of the Spirit, is the Word of God. Remember that in Ephesians 6.17? Jesus modeled it. He could have used his deity to defeat Satan and the, de- the devil in the desert. But what did he do? He used the Word of God, his Old Testament scriptures, which is his mind and thinking, to defeat the devil, giving us an example to follow. So if we obey what the Spirit saying to us in the Word of God, that Holy Spirit, what he says to us, we will have Satan crushed under our feet. Now when he says God, the God of peace, the word God, and uh, that phrase God of peace is found, is found many uh, several times in chapters 14, 15, and 16. The, the term God there does not refer to the Father or the Son, but actually the Holy Spirit. And we know that because of the grammar in the passage and also Paul's statements, which we studied in Romans 14, 17. 15.13 and Galatians 5.22-23 thus Paul's statement in Romans 16.20 is not is technically not a prayer however as we'll say it was a prayer that he offered to the Father now first of all to prove the fact that when he says the God of peace to prove that he is talking about the Spirit and not the Son of the Father there are several things as I mentioned before that indicate this to us first of all grammatically when it says the word peace there. The word peace in the original, Irene, it functions as a genitive of product. That's one of the reasons why you go, you have a pastor who goes back to the original language because that is where the Holy, the Holy Spirit inspired. Not the New American Standard of the King James or any English translation. It was the Greek and the Hebrew. So we go back there because that's where we're going to get accuracy in our doctrine. You can get inaccuracy by following an English translation exclusively. You can get into false doctrine. Like the King James. If you read Romans 8.1, it sounds like legalism there. That you're no condemnation now for Christ Jesus because it adds things to it that are not found in the original autograph. So he says here in Romans 16.20, the word peace there, God of peace, the word peace there in the original functions as a genitive product. What does that mean to us? It means that it, peace, is the product of the noun God, theos to which it stands related. And it indicates to us that God the Holy Spirit produces peace in and among believers. Secondly, secondly, the second thing that proves that God, the God of peace here in Romans 16, 20 is speaking of the Holy Spirit is that in Romans 14, 17, that passage teaches us that peace and joy is manifested among believers by means of fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans, hold your place, look at Romans 14. Romans chapter 14. Look at verse 16. 
Romans 14, 16, Paul says, Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing. He's speaking to the strong believers, remember. And he says, Don't let the good thing, your freedom in Christ, to eat all foods, to be spoken of as evil by the weaker believers who think you have to be under the dietary regulations. Then he says in verse 17, Why is that the case? For the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but rather righteousness and peace and joy. And then when he says, In the Holy Spirit... In the Holy Spirit is instrumental. It tells us that peace, joy, and righteousness is by means of fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In Romans 15, 13, another indication that the God of peace is the Holy Spirit in verse, verse 16, Romans 16, 20, is that in Romans 15, 13, Paul shares with his readers the prayer he makes to the Father on their behalf that the Spirit will cause them to be filled with all joy and peace by exercising faith and what the Spirit says in the Old Testament and through the Lord and the Apostles' teaching that now appears in the Greek New Testament. And the purpose of this, he teaches, is that they would prosper with a confidence that is divine in quality and character by means of the power of the Spirit, which is appropriated to faith and what the Spirit says in the Word of God. And then, lastly, in Paul's statement in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that those verses support the fact that when Paul talks about the God of peace in Romans 16, 20, he's referring to the Spirit and not the Father. Why? Because that passage teaches that joy and peace are the production of the Holy Spirit. Go to Galatians. Hold your place in Romans, but go to Galatians now. <coughs> Look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, look at verse 13. Galatians 5, 13. Paul says, For you were called a freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. That's not just talking about immorality. That's talking about being legalistic, being a gossip, a judger, maligner, somebody who is in the bold and the sins of the tongue. Okay? In context, that's what he's talking about. He says, But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting Leviticus 19.18. But he says, If you bite and devour one another, sins of the tongue, take care that you are not consumed by one another. That's why a church that's involved and gossiping and judging and maligning and slandering other believers will devour itself. The word, the language in the original is talking about is used of wild animals destroying each other. Look at it says in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. How do you do that? Obey what he says in the Word of God. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, the sin nature. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh, the manifestations of the sin nature, are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, that's talking about drug abuse, by the way, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, Factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, 
just as I have also forewarned you that those who practice those things present tense uh, habitually shall not inherit the kingdom of God that means they won't get rewards they won't get their eternal inheritance they're saved as yet through fire 1 Corinthians 3 11 through 15 however they won't get rewards the loss of rewards now look what he says in verse 22 related to what we're talking about in Romans 16 20 and the God of peace that's talking about the Holy Spirit produces peace in our lives but the fruit of the Spirit or the production of the Spirit is what? love joy and what? peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. So it's the Holy Spirit who is producing this peace in us. So when he says in Romans 16 20, if you can go back there now, if you go back to Romans 16 20, when he says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, the God of peace, as we compare scripture with scripture and look at the grammar of the passage, that should be translated the God who produces peace in us and among us see not only does he give us peace within our souls if we obey what he says in the word of God but he'll give us peace amongst each other if we're all obeying the word uh, obeying the spirit and the word of God not all believers do that so therefore you have problems because they're not obeying the word of God but if we're all obeying the word of God there'll be peace among us okay so therefore as was the case in Romans 15 5 verses 13 and 33 of that chapter this statement in Romans 16 20 is technically not a prayer because it's not addressed specifically to the Father however as I said earlier it is an intercessory prayer that Paul prayed so what is he doing? he's revealing his spirit inspired desire for the Roman church as an indirect means of encouraging the Roman believers to go forward in the Father's plan he's saying this is what I pray that will take place among you and I'm doing that because I'm trying to encourage you to go forward in God's plan if you obey what I'm saying if you obey the spirit and what I'm saying and this, what the spirit is saying to me Paul says then God the Holy Spirit who produces peace in and among you is going to crush Satan under your feet the spirit will so when he says of peace that refers to the peace that is produced by the Holy Spirit in among the in and among Roman the Roman believers, and he does this how when we when the Roman believers continue to obey the commands and prohibitions that Paul issued them in the main argument of this epistle, and if they obey his teaching concerning false teachers such as the Judaizers in Romans sixteen verses seventeen through nineteen. So God wants us to have peace, and we have peace with God positionally the minute we believed in Christ. We were declared justified through faith alone and Christ alone. And we had peace with God. And now we can experience that peace in our lives that is ours positionally by obeying the word of God. Let's take a look at a couple of passages. Uh, you're in Romans. Look at Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 1. I'm going to show you about this positional aspect of peace. The peace of God. And positional means what God has done for you how God views you, okay? That is the two aspects of positional truth. What God has done for you and how God views you and his relationship to you. Look at Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, faith in who? Jesus, as, it's, as we saw in, in chapters 3 and 4 of this, of this epistle. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this Christ in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. That's positionally. That's what God has done for you and God wants you to experience it now in time. How can you do that? Look at Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 1. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Other believers might want to condemn you. Your mother and your father, your your, your old boyfriend, your ex-husband, or your ex-wife might want to condemn you. But there's no condemnation from God's perspective. He's not condemning you. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the, the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, the sin nature. He, the Son, condemned the sin nature in His human nature. So why? So that the requirement of the law, perfect obedience, might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now listen, this is how you walk according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh, the word, the phrase there, according to the flesh, means those who submit themselves to the desires of the sin nature. They set their minds, they're occupied with the things of the sin nature. So if you are involved in, let's say, pornography, well, that you're basically feeding what the sin nature wants. You're giving in to the sin nature. Or if you're into gossip and you listen to gossip, that's feeding your sin nature. You're submitting to what the sin nature wants. He doesn't want you. Don't want that because you're not going to have peace. You're going to have loss of fellowship with God as a Christian. But those who set their uh, submit to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are submissive to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, which are found in the Word of God. And then look, he says, for the mind set on the flesh is death. For the Christian, that's loss of fellowship with God. But the mind set on the Spirit is what experiencing eternal life and the peace of God. Look at Philippians. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Look at verse 8. Uh, well, actually, look at Philippians 4, 6. Philippians 4, 6. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious, he says, for nothing. So if you are anxious about something and God says not to, who, who inspired Paul to write this? The Spirit. So if you go and be anxious about something, then you're sinning. Be anxious for nothing. But what are you to do? But in everything, whatever you're dealing with, whatever circumstance, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Verse 7 is, is the result of doing that. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, he's talking about the Word of God. Dwell on these things. Think about what the Word of God says. And the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, you saw me practice the Word of God. Not only did I teach you, 
but I practiced it. He says, practice these things. And then what it says, and the God who produces peace, the same construction that's in Romans 16, 20, the God, God, the Holy Spirit, who produces peace, will be among you, will be with you. So there we have, that's how you experience the peace of God in relation to prayer and in relation to the Word of God. Now go back to Romans 16, 20. Let's go further in the passage. Because he says, now we know it's the God, the God, the Holy Spirit, who produces this peace. Now, you're probably saying, well, Bill, why didn't you just tell me it was God, the Holy Spirit? Why do you have to go through all that? Well, you lazy son of a gun. You need to go through it because you need to understand why not just sit there, oh, whatever you say, Pastor Bill, like I'm the Pope. Okay, that's what people do in, in, in Catholicism. I'm showing you these things. You need to understand why it's the Holy Spirit. I know what it is. I know why I believe what I believe. And I know why I interpret the way I interpret. And so this is for your benefit that I show you these things. Because you should understand and know why the passage says this. And if you disagree with it, you should have that you have that right to disagree with it. If you think that's that's an incorrect interpretation. But if you're going to disagree, what is your interpretation? So I'm showing you these things so you understand. It's important that I tell you who it is because I want you to know the relationship that you have to the Holy Spirit and the importance of the Holy Spirit and you experiencing victory over Satan. Okay? And the Holy Spirit is key to us experiencing victory over Satan. And if we listen to what the Holy Spirit says in the Word of God, we will have that victory experientially over Satan. Now he says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace, the God who produces peace, or we can say God the Holy Spirit who produces peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. Will crush is the word sindrivo, which is not used in reference here to God the Son's victory over Satan at his second advent or upon putting down the final God-may-God rebellion after the millennium because there's nothing in the context that indicates this whatsoever. Rather, when he says that Satan will soon uh, be crushed under your feet, that speaks, and this is very exciting, it speaks of a victory in the lives of the Roman believers at the time of writing and not the future eschatological victory of Christ over Satan and his kingdom. Eschatological means the things that are future to the rapture. Now, this is all indicated by the fact that Paul doesn't say that Satan will be crushed under Christ's feet. Does it say that? What does it say? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under Christ's feet? No. It says under your feet. So, that uh, when he says this, that Satan will... When he doesn't say that Satan will be crushed under Christ's feet... Uh, that's going to be the case at the second advent, and when he throws, and, uh, and also the uh, when he puts down the final God may God rebellion and sends Satan to the lake of fire. When he says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, he's talking about the Holy Spirit crushing Satan under the Roman believers' feet if they obey what he taught them in this epistle. So if we obey what Paul taught us in this epistle, and specifically we 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 separate ourselves from false teaching. When we do that and look out for people who cause divisions and dissensions, obey what he taught us, and not fall for the smooth and flattering speech of the false teachers, when we do that, see, Satan's behind the false teachers. So when we obey what the Spirit says, those false teachers that are promoted by Satan and empowered by Satan, will be Satan will be crushed under our feet. Because he can't stand against the Spirit and the Word. 
he cannot stand against them. The devil is petrified if a Christian knows his Bible. And he would do anything to crush a Christian and take the Christian away from the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God. He knows if he can just get Christians away from the Word of God, he takes them away from their understanding the power that is available to them, how powerful they truly are. They're seated at the right hand of God where Christ is, and that's a place of power and victory. If Christians knew their Bible, they would experience deliverance over sin. They wouldn't be impotent. They could they could turn the world upside down. But they don't turn the world upside down like they did in the first century because they don't have a respect for the Word of God. They don't have a respect for the Bible. And so all of this will take place. That Satan will be crushed under the Roman believers' feet if they if the Roman believers obey Paul's teaching in verses 16, uh, chapter 16, verses 17 through 19. So here, verse 20, that first statement implies, Paul implies that Satan is behind the false teachers that he warned the Roman believers about. And thus when they obey his teaching in verses 17 through 19, the Holy Spirit, who inspired his teaching, will as a certainty crush Satan and the false teachers that he inspires. Under your feet, that's special. Everybody in the first century would know all about that. When a military commander in the ancient world won a great victory over an enemy, what was customary was is they had his boot or sandal on the neck of the the other commander, on the on the neck of his enemies. That's the that is the imagery that Paul's using from the ancient world. It's the imagery of one who is vanquished lying behind uh, beneath the victor's feet. So he's saying to us, he's saying it's uh, here that the Roman believers will have Satan's neck under their feet if they obey what he taught them, taught them in this epistle, and particularly his warning in Rome in Romans 16 verses 17 through 19. So listen to me. The devil is not omnipotent. There's one thing he fears. A Christian that knows about his union and identification and the implications of his marriage to Christ. A Christian who is confident and has faith in his God and what his God says in the Bible and the Spirit, what he says in the Bible. That is a Christian the devil shakes over. They can, Because they cannot stand against the Christian who's got omnipotence at his disposal. Listen to me. He cannot stand against a Christian who has the omnipotence of God and he's using it. The Word of God. Let me show you something. Go to uh, Matthew. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 1. Matthew 4, 1. Jesus showed us the power of the Word of God in his dealings with the devil in Matthew 4. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, and he's leading Jesus into a dangerous situation. He's going to, he's going to face the devil. Sometimes that means that the Holy Spirit, a lot of Christians are so, they, because again, they're ignorant of the Word of God. I can't say it enough. Everybody thinks that, oh, God's not behind. If I, you go through adversity or I go through adversity, we immediately think, that it's the devil's fault. We blame the devil for everything. No. God, the Holy Spirit, according to the Father's plan, 
and what the sun wants for us will take us into a situation of adversity and tremendous suffering many times and temptation. He, he'll bring us in a situation and allow us an opportunity to glorify him by facing the devil one-on-one. By facing the kingdom of darkness one-on-one. When I say temptation, I meant testing. He doesn't tempt us to sin. So we see in Matthew 4, 1, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted, now the Spirit was doing that, remember that. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And then the tempter came, the devil of course, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered, Using the Spirit of God, who inspired this passage he's quoting, Deuteronomy 8.3, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What is the sword of the Spirit? In Ephesians 6.17, Paul says, Use the sword of the Spirit. Take it up. Well, Jesus is using the sword of the Spirit. So when you're when you're in a, a situation of temptation and you're going through adversity, do what I do. Quote Scripture. Take your Bible. Read it. Read it out loud. Know it. Memorize it. Understand what it's saying. And tell yourself that. Talk to yourself in that. And and fight the, fight the enemy, not with your own human power, or shaking your fist at him. He lo- loves that because there's nothing going to happen there. Using the word of God. That's when he's scared. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands and their on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against stone. Notice the devil's using scripture too, but he's misapplying it. But notice that he's trying to get Jesus to presume on God. Look at verse seven. Again, Jesus answers him with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you. Because he could give them because God had temporarily given them to him this world. He's the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 Temporarily he's the God of this world. All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus again, using the sword of the Spirit, the word of God says this, Go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Deuteronomy 6.13 And then look what happens. Jesus submitted to God, the Holy Spirit there, and the Father, by quoting Scripture, look what happened. Then the devil left him. And behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. He went through the testing successfully with the Word of God, giving us an example to follow. That's the power we have. Look at James chapter 4. Go to James chapter 4. After Hebrews. James chapter 4. Look at verse 7. James chapter 4, verse 7. Basically, this says what Jesus did in Matthew 4. Submit to God. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, just like Jesus showed us. How do you resist the devil? With the word of God. Submitting to God is obeying the word of God. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. And look what it says. 
He will flee from you. Why? Because he can't stand against the word of God. We have more power at our disposal than he has. Because we got God's word. The mind and thinking of Christ. The sword of the spirit at our disposal. That's why it's good that we have the Bible in our in our notebooks and on our refrigerator better that we have it in our soul circulating, metabolized and ready for application think like Jesus does that means you got to get immersed and have this book saturated in your soul and that means it takes, it takes work and application application I mean applying yourself to the task of learning your Bible it takes a lot of work to be a student of the Bible and it's a lifelong pursuit don't miss, don't miss that. Look at Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 Finally Be strong in the Lord And in the strength of his might Put on the full armor of God What's that? That's your union with Christ He's using our union in Christ And using giving it a military uh, uh, metaphor Because he's talking about our conflict with Satan In the kingdom of darkness Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might Put on the full armor of God Why? So that, so that you'll be able to stand firm no offense here. Just withstand attacks. Armor is to protect you from attacks, okay? So put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Why? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, human beings. Our true enemy is not human beings. It is the devil in his kingdom of darkness. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against who? And he lists, he lists the angelic hierarchy which we studied on Paltalk years ago. and You can go to our website under uh, in our written section under um, the spiritual life section and we have the whole exegesis of Ephesians 6, 10 through 19. So he says in verse uh, 12, but it, our, flesh, our struggle is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm again defensive measures stand firm therefore having girded your loins with truth the, the belt see the, when he's talking about it, the belt the Roman he was he was chained to a Roman soldier a Praetorian guardsman and the Roman soldier's armor was held together by the belt so the belt of truth for the Christian the word of God is what holds everything together for us having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness the imputed righteousness of Christ that was given to us as a gift through faith in Christ and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace that actually means put on the combat boots of the gospel and in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one so trusting in God's word will protect you from the flaming missiles of the evil one doubts fears, intimidation and intimidation tactics that the devil will use. Look at verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and what? The sword of the spirit. What is the sword of the spirit? 
which is the word of God. And the word word there, it's not lo- the usual word rogod, logos, but rhema. And that talks about a specific doctrine related to a specific situation that we're in. So that's why we need to be accurate in our application of the word of God, apply the right doctrine, the right teaching for the right circumstance that we find ourselves in. So there we have how the word of God, when Paul says in Romans 16, 20, which you can go back to, when he says that God the Holy Spirit who produces peace in us and among us as believers will soon crush Satan under your feet, he's saying that you can experience that spiritual victory over Satan now, but if, if you obey what the Spirit says to you, and the word of God. And the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. Now look at Romans 16, 20. I, want, I have one more statement in the verse that I want to show you. He says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now he's using a figure of speech in order to emphasize what he's saying in the second statement. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's the figure of a syndeton. Uh, for instance, if you notice between the statement the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, he doesn't use an and or a but, does he? That's called a connective word. When the writer doesn't use a connective word, like here, and just starts the word up, the next sentence off with the, that means that Paul wants us to understand and concentrate on that statement. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. What does he mean by grace there? Grace refers, it's the word haris, and it refers to the means by which grace might be received, namely, through the mind and thinking of Christ, the Word of God, which is inspired by the Spirit of God. See, what he's saying here with this word grace is that the Word of God that's being taught to you is grace. It's grace being given to you. Grace manifests itself in many ways. God's grace. Here, he's talking about the grace that is given to us in the word of God. Doesn't he say at the beginning of the epistle and all of his epistles, grace be to you and peace? Well, grace, he's saying, I'm going to give you in this epistle a, a manifestation of the grace of God. I'm going to teach you about God here in this epistle. That is grace. And if you obey what I say, you will have peace. That's why peace always follows grace and Paul's uh, in, uh, uh, introductions. Now, the Spirit, through the communication of the word of God to the believer reveals the God the Father's grace policy to the believer. You know what grace is? Grace is something we don't earn or deserve. Now think about this. Listen to me carefully how grace applies. God treated... What do we deserve? All of us. Aren't we sinners and there's none righteous, no, not one? We deserve the lake of fire, right? Well, God didn't treat us the way we deserved. He's holy, we're sinners. God could have said and been justified throwing us in the lake of fire. But he treated us better than we deserve. We have no merit with him. He's perfect. So he treated us, treated all of us sinners in grace. Now, we are now obligated to treat each other in grace. Now, if there's somebody in your life that you don't think is worthy, join the club because God doesn't think you're worthy. He doesn't think you're worthy of God. God condemned us to, to the uh, condemned us. But then he treated us better than we deserved. So if God treated us that way, better than we deserve, we're obligated to treat our fellow believer who we might find obnoxious or the unbeliever who we might find obnoxious, we're obligated to treat them the same way God treated us. And legalistic, self-righteous, 
teachers of the word of God, false teachers that Paul talks about, don't understand grace. They don't understand grace. Always remember this. God treated you and me better than we deserved. Always remember that the next time somebody hurts you, the next time somebody wounds you, think about how you've been toward God and how God has treated you. And every time somebody says something bad to me or about me or slanders me or sends me a nasty email and doesn't know what they're talking about, I just say, God, how did you treat me? You treated me better than I deserved. You forgave me all my sins. Now, in the past and in the future, you blessed me, graced me out, you gave me life, you redeemed me, I'm going to live with you for, in heaven uh, forever and ever. I have fellowship with you, I've got the Word of God, the Spirit and the Father and the Son dwelling me. You treated me and I get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I am obligated, Father, because you treated me so well, better than I deserve in grace. I'm obligated, Father, to forgive and treat that person that's wounded me the same way you treated me and I wounded you. So God treated me in grace better than I deserve and I wounded him with sin. See, we forget how God treats us and how God looks at us. That's why self-righteous people, they never think about how God treated them. Because if they did, they'd be quick and sh they, would be, they would stop their mouths from running and slandering people or pretending that they're better than other people. They're thinking they're better than other people. See, that right? self-righteous people like to compare themselves to others. They don't know what grace is about. Christians talk about grace, but they don't practice it. They don't practice it. They say, you know, that, you know about the grace of God, yet they don't treat their fellow Christians in grace. They don't know anything about grace. If they knew and understood and believed that they were treated better than they deserved, they would be. They would never say or do anything on, uh, um, hurtful to their fellow believer. Or they wouldn't have an unforgiving heart. See, those who know that they've been forgiven much, love much. Remember the woman in Luke chapter 7 who was forgiven all of her sins? She was a prostitute. And Simon the Pharisee, the legalistic son of the gun, he thought he was better. And you know what happened? She was weeping tears on his Jesus' feet and wiping them with her hair and put an expensive perfume on his head and his body because for burial. And she was a prostitute. And God says, what she did for me, Jesus said, what she did for me is going to be proclaimed forever, what she did for me. And she was a prostitute. And Simon the Pharisee said, I'm better than her. If Jesus knew who, what kind of woman that was, he would, he would never let her touch, touch him at all. Now, Jesus said something. Her sins were forgiven, not because of what she did, but because she had faith in him. But he said something to Simon. Simon, those who love much have been forgiven much. Now, we've all been forgiven much. However, those who do truly love like God loves, they know, they know and experience it. They believe that by faith, that they've been forgiven much. That's why Paul loved so much, he called himself the chief of all sinners. Legalistic, self-righteous people, they never look at themselves. They're so busy taking the speck out of their brother's eye and not the log out of their own eye. They're, they're so busy looking at how other people are acting, they forget how wicked they themselves are. See, a self-righteous person doesn't think that. They think that, I'm good, I'm better than that person. I would never do such a thing. You are so deceived if you think that. We're all sinners. 
We're all in need of the grace of God and we've all been the beneficiaries as believers of the grace of God. Now the Spirit of God, speaking through the communication of the Word of God to the believer's human spirit regarding the will of the Father is the means by which God's grace is received by believers. That's why I say those people who reject the grace of God and are legalistic and self-righteous and not grace-oriented but grace-disoriented they, because they don't know their Bible that's why they're grace-disoriented. Now Romans 16.20 as we close is a spirit-inspired desire that the Romans would respond to the Spirit's teaching in this epistle regarding the will of the Father for each individual believer. This second statement is not speaking of grace at conversion but rather God's grace after conversion. And when he says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, that denotes the intimate relationship between Paul, the Roman believers, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says, Be with you, what does that mean? When he says, Now the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Be with you indicates that Paul's spirit-inspired desire is that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, namely his doctrine or spirit-inspired teaching, would cause itself to be manifested among the Roman believers. He's saying, I want you not to only to learn the Word of God, and, and I want you to obey what the Spirit is saying in the Word of God, and when you do, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be manifested among all of you. That's what he talking. When he says, be with you, he says, I want you to cause it to be manifested among you. How can we cause it to be manifested among us? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, or Bible doctrine, the Word of God, by obeying what, it, what the Word of God says. So this would take place again. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would cause, it, cause itself to be manifested among the Roman believers if they continued to obey the commands and prohibitions that Paul issued in the main argument of the epistle and his teaching concerning false teachers in Romans 16, verses 17 through 19. So it all comes down again to the Bible. Everything pivots off the Bible. What it says about God what it says about his policy, what it says about how he wants us to do things. You cannot learn enough of this book. No one arrives. There's no pastor who has it all down. We're going to be students of the Word of God forever. Forever. Because God's Word, people, is eternal. That means we'll never get to the depths of the Word of God. There are things in the Word of God we have no idea until we get more, more grace and we get that resurrection body and then we'll see clearer Right now we see dimly as in a mirror. So Paul is talking about, uh, in these two statements in Romans 16, 20, God the Holy Spirit crushing Satan under the Romans believers' feet if they obey his teaching and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ being manifested among them. If they obey his teaching, it will be manifested among them. Well, we run out of time. We'll pick this up tomorrow, same time. And uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would challenge us with the things that we've heard. Rebuke us if necessary. Instruct us in righteousness. And of course, encourage us. Uh, build us up spiritually so we can go forward in our daily lives and bring glory to you, not only in our personal lives, but also at our as a church, as a local assembly who seeks to learn and meet uh, with each other to study the word of God. So, Father, we pray that the fellowship would be empowered by the Spirit after service. And our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.